Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this installment of Shinyi Pai's Lyric World series, poet Brian Comey Dempster reads from his collections Topaz and Seas. His work considers what it is to be othered in America, historically and personally. The backdrops are the legacy of the Japanese internment camp era, the impact of anti-Asian bigotry, and the experience of raising a child with a disability. Komei Dempster is the editor of From Our Side of the Fence, Growing Up in America's Concentration Camps and Making Home from War, Stories of Japanese-American Exile and Resettlement. About Komei Dempster's Seas Collection, writer and editor Pat Matsueda says, quote, it sounds paradoxical to call Seas an epic when it focuses on the individual, the everyday, the familiar, and has a central figure who was diagnosed as, quote, retarded, abnormal, impaired, unquote, who hardly speaks, and who is greatly dependent on others. And yet, that is the scale, importance, and achievement of Brian Comey Dempster's second collection of poetry." Unquote. Curated by Seattle-based poet Shinyi Pai, Lyric World, Conversations with Contemporary Poets, explores streams and tributaries of modern poetry in readings and discussion. The series takes us into how poems come to be, how they find, inspire, and inform us and how they provoke deeper conversations about the human experience. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on April 12, 2021. Music for the program was provided by Brian's brother, Lauren Kiyoshi Dempster. On March 16, 2021, a mass shooting took place in Atlanta, Georgia. The massacre claimed the lives of eight people, six of whom were Asian women. While the shooter deliberately targeted Asian spas on this crime spree, local law enforcement has failed to call the incident a hate crime. President Biden's Justice Department has also been slow to determine whether the crime meets federal hate crime statutes. The Atlanta spa shootings left people like me completely shattered. The incident was a culmination of a year in which violent anti-Asian hate crimes exploded as a result of the rhetoric and hostility fomented by the previous political administration. In the past year, we've seen a rise in violent attacks on Asian Americans amounting to a 150% increase in hate crimes. These statistics are also likely underreported because of deficiencies in hate crime reporting. News cycle shift and tomorrow the country will turn its focus to some other story but some of us won't be the same. Let us dedicate ourselves today to a poetry of remembering and the reverberations of our ancestors. For this installment of Lyric World, we're here to talk with poet Brian Comey Dempster about how Asians and Asian Americans have been depicted and dehumanized throughout American history and what it means to protect and love one another. 
Lyric World is a series of programs that invites contemporary poets into conversation, providing a space for literary artists to talk about the concerns and themes that imbue their poetry as they intersect with our culture and time. Lyric World is fiscally sponsored by Shunpike and supported by the Windrose Fund and the Satterberg Foundation. Brian Kume Dempster's debut book of poetry, Topaz, was published by Four Way Books in 2013 and received the 15 Bytes 2014 Book Award in Poetry. He is the editor of both From Our Side of the Fence, Growing Up in America's Concentration Camps, and Making Home from War, Stories of Japanese American Exile and Resettlement. His most recent book, Seas, came out in 2020. Brian is a professor of rhetoric and language and a faculty member in Asian Pacific American Studies at the University of San Francisco, where he received the Distinguished Teaching Award in 2010. He divides his time between teaching and serving as Director of Administration for the Masters of Arts in Asia Pacific Studies. As a poet, Brian has deep ties to the Pacific Northwest. His parents are Seattle musical legend Stuart Dempster and artist Renko Ishida Dempster. Reading his work for the first time, I was reminded of poets like Heather Nagami and Brandon Shimoda, who have also explored histories of racism and internment and its lasting impacts in their writing. Brian's newest book, Seas, explores the topic of disability and caring for a severely disabled son. Hi everyone, I'm gonna read some poems from my first book, Topaz, to begin. This book looks at the Japanese American incarceration experience which impacted my maternal family. The first poem I'd like to read is dedicated to my grandfather, the Archbishop Nitenashida. He was incarcerated in very department, various Department of Justice camps during World War II while the rest of the family was in prison in Topaz, Utah, including my mother as a baby. This poem is called Your Hands Guide Me Through Trains. From the bridge, we stare down at the track, searching the arch, where rails curve out of darkness. You lift me on your shoulders and we balance in white light the dead center approaching. The whistle blows, a rumble climbs through the bones of your feet, through your legs and hands into mine. Your right hand clenches my right, your left hand clenches my left. If this were 1942, my hands would be the handle of your suitcase and your purple book scripted in prayer. Torn from family, you board a boxcar, snap open your case, set your brush and ink to the right, stones to the left, paint your own sea and coast as the plains, grass, and ironwoods rattle by. You dip the brush in each camp and each barrack, fill the paper with kelp and jellyfish, pebbles and shells tape the sheets side by side. When it grows dark, you draw tracks leading to the edge of the tide. Asking for water, your hands 
unclasp and cling to the wires as men rip the sash from your back. A rifle butt knocks prayer loose from your throat. But it is 1976, a Sunday like any other, when you drape beads over my wrists and open the Lotus Sutra on the bridge, anchor its pages with stones, offer prayers as the train rushes under our feet, our lungs flowering with soot and steam. For years, I traveled to your hands, unrolled ocean scrolls from your case. In barracks, you'd held the brush, painting your way out. By 1996, your brush strokes fade, washy crumples in my palms. Your fingers grip a cane, waver with chopsticks, soup, tea and rice, sprig your bib. I feed you, brush your teeth. My right hand clenches your right. My left clenches your left. I lower you in the chair, place your feet on the steel ledges. Grandfather, can we run just once through the gravel along silver rail? Watch flames curl off faces of men smudged in coal. Can you take me to Missoula and Fort Sill, wheels circling back to Crystal City? We arrive at the church where you live, and I wheel you past rows of empty chairs, drape the sash over your back, strike a match, light sticks of incense. Your hands guide me through the years, like a black iron rope into the orange glow, a tunnel of smoke, pages returning us to the shores of our home. So in my grandfather's church, where they were forcibly removed during the war, there's this beautiful temple bell. It stands sentry in one of the huge Victorian front windows. It always gave me comfort and strength when I looked at the bell. And I would put my young son Brendan's head in the bell and gently, gently tap it. And he would hear the reverberations of his ancestors. This poem is called Temple Bell Lesson. Son, I am weighted you are light. Our ancestors imprisoned, outcast in sand, swinging between scorching air and the insult of blizzards. Their skin bronzed and chilled like brass. Listen to their sorrow ringing. Topaz was completed in 2013 and published by Four Way Books. And it's a standalone book, but it does resonate with C's, S-E-I-Z-E, 
my second book that came out in September 2020. One convergence between the two books is the Japanese wartime incarceration. Sees, however, has a different central narrative, which is a father-son journey. And it's really a father's attempt to understand his dissonant, sometimes conflicting emotions to resolve them. But not only that, it's also to connect his son's epilepsy, his medical condition to historical and other types of seizure. This poem is in the first section, it's called Seized, S-E-I-Z-E-D. By day, by night, in handcuffs, through mind scramble, brain surged, shock of force, body taut, alerted, taken, outside, inside, anytime, any place, no words to explain. My infant mother, 1942, my young son, now. The rug, his twisted body, his world inside, and what it does, red flare or white lightning, fried impulse or smoldering heat, a searing of gray or glitter of stars veiled by fog, her fragments, yellow orb, the porch light, shimmer against her face, the cradle, her mother's arms, a blanket's false cover, itch of wool, hives on skin, things just happen, by bus, by train, in war, electric storms, a horse stable, desert, sand swirl and mind gust, thought sparks, word cloudings, mountains spike against white, a guard's boot, trodden syllable, a thorned cage, wing pierced, baby hawk in wire, my barbed string of words to capture him, capture her. If he never speaks, I carry him. If she cries for her father, grandmother carries her. Some place, my mother carries what is unremembered, begins to know when I ask. I don't speak of things I can't know of despair about my son. We never know where we are going, where love will end us. So I'm gonna move to the final section of the book and I wanna read something that to me resonates with the idea of Buddhism and the Temple Bell Lesson poem. It's a double acrostic, spells Brendan, that's my son's name, on the left and the right column. And it's written in homage to my grandfather and his tradition of Buddhism. It's called Sun Sutra, and Sun is spelled S-O-N, but obviously has other meanings. Sun Sutra. Boy of stars, sun inside, fallen without a sob, 
rest against me, bending sunflower, still the flutter, ease your head, son, it's late, no way to before, your skull shadowed and sunlit, turn, deepen us with your shadow words, muted sun, say dad after me, your scattered sun petals, our sutra nightfall, I gather you, my bruised son. The poem that follows is written in the voice of my mother. As I mentioned before, she was only a baby at the time that she was forcibly removed from their church home. And as a result, she really doesn't remember much of the experience, fragments, she calls it. So this poem inhabits her voice, and it's really an attempt to look at her own sense of history through the lens of having a grandson, Brendan, my son, who is nonverbal, and the resonances between those histories and silences. My mother watches horses with Brendan. Through the fence, you look out their hooves breaking new earth. Sleek fur, the shade of bourbon, kicking up clods of green. I wheel you closer to shaking ground. Grandson, at 10 years old, you pointed them. Once I thought you said the word horse. Someday I'll paint you the story. Topaz rain galloped over roofs, barracks thundered. We were the ones corralled. My hands on your shoulders, your hand taps my wrist. Look, they are flying over crests of hills running into the sky. Go far enough, speak what you can. There's love in silence, all things, they come and go. The final poem I'll read today is a significant moment. And my son who's nonverbal, well, he did actually utter words here and there throughout his life. But this momentous poem is about something that I would call a miracle. It's called Brendan's I Am. A close flash, quick torrent, the sounding near, it happened in time. The path deepened, water reached the house. Our son 14 walked alone to his blue stroller chair. Wheels locked, we strapped him in, his body still as Buddha beneath the tree.
I steadied the bowl. Grace raised the spoon of broth to his lips. Her words, Brendan, we just want you to have a happy life. Silver touches his tongue. Two syllables gush from his mouth. Rain gathers, our eyes close, the current flows through us. His first real sentence, I am. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for those powerful poems, Brian. Thank you, Shani. It was, it was a pleasure and a privilege to share them with you. And I appreciate your compassion and sensitivity to the work. Well, to get us started on our conversation, there's, there's quite a bit to talk about. Uh, the dehumanization of Asians and anti-Asian hate are not new to America. In your book, Topaz, you write of your grandfather, Niten Ishida's internment experience during World War II. What connections do you draw between history and current events? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the first thing I see is more macro. It is the social conditions by which these things happen. So during World War II, after Japan Pearl Harbor, they, 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 they Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, right, as everyone knows. And immediately, Japanese and Japanese Americans became the other. And they were a perceived threat due to that event. Now, obviously, there was a false conflation made between Japanese in Japan and Japanese Americans. Now, during the pandemic, the social condition strikes me as one of economic fragility and if you look throughout history, violence done towards Asian Americans is often caused by those two conditions, sometimes multiple. Economic fragility, wartime, which creates a false justification often of military necessity. I say that in quotes. And so I feel like there's these macro social political conditions that are in place that make Asian Americans very vulnerable at these times. As a result of this, then this idea of the other becomes ratified through these different forms. One is the idea of a binary, right? So there's us and there's them. This, of course, is a flattening of the dimensionality of who Asian Americans are. And so, for example, Japanese Americans, their identity became linked to espionage, to being sneaky, to being people who had a sort of dual identity where they, they pretended to be loyal to America and simultaneously were actually loyal to Japan. I think with the pandemic, it's a sort of quote unquote unseen enemy. It's invisible, right? And it reminds me of the historical notion of yellow peril that there's this perceived threat. And if you think about the US-China trade war, right? As China rises economically, I do think that there's a way in which the U.S. has this sort of paranoia. And I feel like that paranoia has come out in the form of anxiety. And then that gets expressed through violence towards Asian Americans. And again, 
the false conflation between those who are from China, this virus supposedly from China and then Chinese Americans, but then the notion of not seeing the differences between different types of Asian Americans within that problem. Finally, I do think rhetoric and policy are then ways in which this gets legitimized. And as you know, Xinyi, right? We hear the Kung flu thrown around flippantly. We hear the China virus made into this, you know, it sort of weaponizes language. And that being said over and over and repeated with the last four years of our political social unrest, I think created a perfect storm of conditions for people to feel righteous and justified in their actions. Similarly, with Japanese Americans, I think about headlines back during that time, the use of the word Jap as if it were normal. And again, the conflation of Japanese with treasonous, disloyal, un-American, American being equated with being white American, frankly. And so those are some of the just basic parallels that I see. I, I don't want to go, go too much deeper into it at the moment, but I, I hope that gets at a sort of template or paradigm for us to talk about today. Is that a good starting point? Yeah, that was a very complex and rich answer. It's great. So, you know, many of the women that died in the Atlanta shooting, they were mothers, they were grandmothers. As children, you and I, we worry about the vulnerability of our elders, while as parents, we fear the bullying that our innocent mixed-race children will endure as schools reopen. What is it about the character and quality of this year of violence towards Asian Americans that most unsettles you? Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful question. Yeah, processing that and thinking about that, I think one thing is the sense of unpredictability of the violence and the sense of arbitrary arbitrariness of it. I, I feel like there's a lack of consciousness on the part of the perpetrators that there's a sense in which all the things we talked about in our previous question, right, are assimilated, but they're assimilated in this unconscious way. And they, they get enacted through the use of violence, right? Because violence does rely on the idea of dehumanization, objectification. So like the March 16th event, I think about this notion of sexual addiction then I think about the ways in which Asian American women have been, you know, objectified within media portrayals, within the notion of militarization, you know, you have war brides, you have comfort women within the notion of colonialism. And I don't think this operates at conscious levels necessarily for the perpetrators, but the idea is that it's not, I'm going to reflect and attempt to understand my own sexual addiction, it's no, I'm going to erase the problem through literal erasure, right? Which is the tragic loss of life. And so this idea of paranoia and anxiety, I feel like it's embedded in the national psyche. 
And again, like, like these rhetorical tropes that we hear, they give a sort of permission to people to act out. The, it's like reifying these feelings. And again, I'm not saying this operates at conscious levels, but in any case, it's incredibly disturbing. In terms of like trying to look at it from almost like a sociological context, I do feel like this idea of model minority myth and stereotype plays into it because Asian Americans historically have been seen in this group that assimilates into the culture and successful and does not make waves. And we all know this is oversimplifying and completely erasing the diversity and complexity of our community. Nonetheless, I do feel like these perpetrators do not feel accountability. They do not feel a fear if they're going to knock an elderly man or woman to the ground or other vulnerable people in our community. And if you watch the videotapes, you can see that sense of aggression, but also that sense of entitlement and righteousness that I can just knock this person to the ground. I don't even care if I'm on camera. I will literally you know, stand here and do this action and I'm not afraid. And I just wanna add one addendum to that. Vincent Chin, I don't know how many in the audience are familiar with this case, but he was killed in a hate crime in Detroit. And this galvanized the Asian American community many years ago. And this to me sort of ties together many of the strands of our conversation today, which is number one, Vincent Chin was Chinese American and these Detroit auto workers they felt that he's responsible for the loss of their jobs, again, economic vulnerability. But again, they were thinking about the Japanese auto industry overtaking the American auto industry. So even though their logic was completely you know, flawed, there was also the idea of mistaken identity embedded within that. And they only got probation. They were fined. This is for murder. And so when I talk about this idea of paranoia embedded into the psyche, you know, think about what happens when you murder an Asian American. If you only get probation, what does that say? I think one of the um, things that arose out of the Vincent Chin case was this legislation or this, uh, this exploration of whether or not that case could be classified as a hate crime, because they mistook him for Japanese or Japanese American. And so therefore, you know, it was like mistaken identity. Could it be a crime? And it's been so interesting to observe the rhetorics around the shooting in Atlanta, like the uh, reticence of the local authorities to call it a hate crime. And also the Biden administration's Department of Justice, you know, kind of uh, slow movement on also, you know, being able to identify whether or not this counts um, as a hate crime. Mm-hmm. And that's been um, very, very difficult in terms of this idea of um, the dehumanization around the language, the weaponization of the language. What is a hate crime? Right, right, right. 
You know, many in our community right now are seized with deep grief, others with rage, and these emotions are actually deeply intertwined. How can the Asian American community channel these energies towards collective change and collective liberation? How can we use our stories to make change? I love the gesture of that question, that it's moving from victimization towards empowerment, that it's moving from these acts being perpetrated towards us trying to somehow leverage this towards some kind of transformative moment, right? Well, I think that story, narrative, poetry, art, right, these forms, they are the antidote to dehumanization, right? That I do think as art makers, we have that responsibility and obligation to give voice to these stories, right? And so, you know, and it's not just our own stories, not just our own histories, but those of other Asian and Asian Pacific American groups of African-American and black community of, of, you know, all communities marginalized by these forces. And I have to say, you know, I think of George Floyd often because the trial's happening now. And then I think of the act that you're talking about of March 16th, the spa shootings. And I keep thinking, why is now the tipping point? You know, these things have been happening, you know, for so long. But one good thing about that tipping point to me is that I've seen more Asian Americans and Asian American women in particular speaking out and telling their stories. And in rhetoric, you know, I teach rhetoric and language at the University of San Francisco. I always talk to my students about ethos, pathos, and logos. And my students sometimes underestimate pathos, the power of the emotional appeal of humanizing. And I think our stories have that power, but there's only so far we can go with them. The stories then have to be integrated into curricula. Educators have to bring those stories into the classroom and the current generation, we need to reach them with those stories because I do think that I've seen it firsthand that when students, when young people, when they receive those stories, it completely gives gray area to what has been seen as binary and black and white in previous iterations of history classes or literature classes. The final piece though, I think is just as important, if not more so, is moving those stories into policy. And what do I mean by that? I think of redress for Japanese Americans was so significant in the 1980s and the Civil Liberties Act was all about Japanese Americans who had not told their stories going into a public forum, some of them scared or shy or you know, having some anxiety, but being brave and courageous and vulnerable and telling their stories. And those stories are what led to $20,000 redress checks to my mother and other Japanese Americans. Now, you cannot quantif quantify injustice. You cannot quantify the loss of four years and livelihood. But those symbolic apologies and reparations, I feel that now is the time for Asian American redress, redress for the entire community through the telling of stories. And so to your point, I hope that through those storytelling, through the use of pathos, through the humanizing of our experiences, 
that things like hate crime will no longer be debatable, that, you know, policies will be there to advocate for us. And hopefully all communities will be given the redresses they deserve. I want to express my appreciation for the breadth and range of the stories that you tell in your poetry from, you know, addressing stories of the Japanese American incarceration to the poem that you chose to end with and giving your son agency and this voice um, to, to yeah. be, be empowered and to speak and to respond. Yeah, thank you. Um, so shifting the attention towards your new book of poems, Seas, there's a sense in the young narrator in some of the poems that we can't be protected from racism. Likewise, we can't be protected from the harm that other kinds of bias cause. In this collection, the vulnerability of human bodies comes across so clearly in the caring for and tending to your disabled son, Brendan. We can't control anything except for how we respond. What do you see as the role of remembering and the role of love in your poems? Yeah, great question. I think with the role of memory remembering, well, I think in terms of history, right? As a 21 year old undergraduate, I'd never heard of the Japanese American incarceration. So once you receive that history of your ancestors, of your family, I do think you have an obligation. I mean that in a positive sense to honor it. So I think memory is about if there was a suppressed history, a suppressed experience, something that had not been told to you, and then you discovered it, remembering is important. Documenting that is important. I think there's also this duality or paradox to it that as you remember and tell that story in poetry or other forms of art, it does reenact trauma. And so it's fragile and delicate, right? So when I began to voice those stories as a Sansei third generation Japanese Americans about my ancestors and family, there was a sense of silence being both something that had to do with shame and guilt, but it also had to do with protecting me and protecting my generation. And, you know, I don't want to burden you with this history. So I think. I had to navigate, how do I remember in a way that's respectful? How do I document in a way that navigates those lines? In terms of this idea of love, I think first is the self. I think to write from love in terms of the self has to do with the interior battle and dilemmas and complexity of the self. And so to me, love through writing actually has to do more with encompassing rage and shame and guilt and love simultaneously than it is only writing about love because I think self-love means accepting all those contradictory battling parts of yourself and attempting to reconcile them, attempting to accept them, our shadow selves, as they say. And then I think going back to your, your great point, I mean, I think it's also about love is humanizing others. So when we write our characters, whether it's my grandfather, whether it's my mother, whether it's family members, friends, 
whether it's James Bird or Matthew Shepard, that we give them that dimensionality. We do not flatten them into a cookie cutter portrait, some kind of generic stereotype. We try to find that depth and dimensionality. And that to me is an act of love. And then I think thinking about my son, it would be loving him or writing sort of with love for him is, is about accepting that he has language that is not normative. So knowing that poems expressed through a normative language have a limit in terms of articulating him, and yet I need to use that vehicle to express who he is. And so he has body language, he's tactile, he has eye contact. And so writing with love for him means acknowledging that and trying to use my normative language to express something that's more intangible, that's more difficult to grasp within a normative context. And finally, I would just say love means also seeing yourself as situated between tradition and innovation, like your predecessors like Garrett Hongo, David Murrah, like Wakako Yamauchi, Hisai Yamamoto, honoring them as a writer, but then also trying to break new ground. And it's also living on that fulcrum between your ancestors and your future. And so maybe you're sending, you know, a, a narrative of love into the future about how your family loved each other despite the trauma and got through it and that your future generations will have that gift. So th those are my thoughts about it. It's, it's a great question. It's a great answer, this idea of a, of a narrative, like a, a love letter for the future. It's yeah. quite a gesture. Thank you. So as we wind down, there's usually one last uh, question that I ask of all of my guests. It's usually around the lines of, what do you feel like is the role of the poet in society, but I feel like more consistent with our conversation would be to ask you, and, and you've already talked about this in various ways, but what is that capacity of poetry to de-weaponize language? Right, right. I think poetry, de-weaponizing language, you're right, because language is simply a medium. And, you know, we have a choice and responsibility about how we're going to use our medium, don't we? I think it has to do with negotiating some of those things we were talking about earlier. So if someone uses a word like retard or jab, a slur, then I think poetry needs to respond to that, that, that poetry cannot you know, even if you didn't speak up in that real life incident when it happened, poetry needs to speak up. You need to then think about, no, I'm not just going to accept that language will be weaponized, as you say. And I'm also going to find the language that moves beyond those reductive terms. And so I have a poem in C's that reminds me sort of in terms of what you're asking, where th these boys essentially bully and attack and assault a boy and use those words that are attempts to sort of um, feminize within this toxic masculinity paradigm. 
And later the narrator realizes that there's regret, there's shame for having participated in that. But the narrator says, I need new words and I need new words for my boy, you know, and waking bird, fierce starling, instead of a word like retard. And so kind of like looking at that in, in a broader context for, for poetry, I think, I think it also has to do with, with seeing our interconnectedness. And honestly, I, I, not just with other communities, not just with other experiences, but I even think poetry has a responsibility to attempt to understand the motivations of its speakers. And whether that is the main speaker of, of a narrative and understanding how do I reconcile shame and guilt with love and peace, or even more scary to think about if we step into the persona of the perpetrator and we're, we're not necessarily, we would never justify those actions, but what does it mean to understand where those actions come from? So for example, in, in the poem Jap, there, there's a war veteran and it's clear that his actions as racist as they are come from a place of wartime trauma for him as a veteran. And that th there's a v Vietnam veterans in the manuscript where there's some of those similar types of gestures. And so I guess for poetry to me, the deep responsibility to me has to do with navigating moral complexity, ethical complexity, aesthetic complexity, and attempting to go away from the black and white reductive paradigm that creates the us versus them narratives and towards the shades of gray that again, humanize, that again, give us dimensionality. And I believe I'll end there. If that does answer your question, Shinyi, does that? It does, but would you actually take us out by reading us a poem from Seas, the one about the boy and starlings? Oh, the, it, it's a long poem, is that okay? <laughs> oh, yes, it's fine, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, so the poem, A Boy, We knocked Jake Brown to the ground in eighth grade, kept him there with words. Get up, retard. A man is born strong, I dare you. A boy is meant to stand up, but Jake wouldn't. My son Brendan can't. Day after day, it hurts to see him stuck. The report branded him retarded, abnormal, impaired, delayed. Waves of words in water, I make him new. Rub spasms from his back. Come on, Brendan, help me. Flat on his belly, he hugs the shower's tiled ground. Please, son, tries to pull himself up, slips, ripples the white curtain. He's safe, no blood this time, just clear streams purling. I keep fit, lift weights so I can lift him. Kneeling, I raise him slow, 
Why can't you do this on your own? Soap, slick, bird, my six-year-old boy slips through my hands. Can you make things easier just this once? I hold tighter, won't let him slip again. Jake's eyes crossed behind bifocals. He'd fumbled my pinpoint pass, tripped at the rim. My boy stays smaller than other boys. Still it hurts to lower myself to him. I need more strength. Old words foam inside me, held back. Are you an idiot? My son looks away. Water streaks his face, washes away tears, his mouth bitter with dove suds, words that never roll off his tongue. Sissy, Jake lost us the game. You play like a girl. Behind the veil are shadows. In steam, I tell myself words will dissolve. Droplets soothing my mouth, running down my chest onto Brendan's back. Four years ago, I told the doctor my voice measured. Be careful with those words. The shower stream grows cold. I am naked and shivering. In the drain's dark well are echoes. I want to believe in him. It was just a report. Jake's bifocals cracked. He pissed his tough skins, moron. More than a word. Sprawled like Jake on pavement, my son spreads out his arms, little wings spanning the damp expanse. My feet sank into wet grass. Jake ran from us, sandy hair whipping his freckles. Sorry, daddy didn't mean it. Because he's my boy, it's my fault. I need new words. Waking bird, fierce starling. My hands pat him dry, smooth as hair. It shines like feathers. One skinny leg kicks out. His hands search the wall, push me away to lift off alone. Stand up to me just this once. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. That was amazing. Thank you, Shini, so much. It was a real honor and privilege to speak with you today. And I just feel a great deal of gratitude that we are able to give voice to these incredibly important issues that our community is facing. And I look forward to continued conversation with you. Sounds good. Be well. Okay. Take care. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on April 12th. Music for the program was provided by Lauren Kiyoshi Dempster. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.
Thank you.